Well, good evening, Hallows Church. Uh, let me invite you to grab your Bibles, open, open them up to Philippians chapter 4. My name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have missed you guys. I've been out for the past couple of weeks, and and I'm missed you guys tremendously, and I'm so excited to be back worshiping with you this evening at this time. And, and we're just going to pick up where Bryant left us off with last, last week, Philippians chapter 4, continuing our study of this little letter under a theme titled Indestructible Joy. And before we dive into verses 2 through 9, I'm going to voice more prayer for us, and then we will, we will do just that. God, would you give us grace? that we might grow in response to your word this evening. Would you open our hearts to receive? Would you stir our lives to respond appropriately uh, by faith to that which we hear and to that which we, you are speaking into our lives in Jesus' name? Amen. One of the ways that you and I can navigate the scriptures as we move from Genesis to Revelation and all the books that comprise this one book called the Bible is under the themes of conflict and peace, of hostility and harmony. In fact, the beginning of the Bible, that's how everything begins. God creates the universe and he declares it all good. And human Adam and Eve uh, enjoyed a harmonious relationship with their creator. Uh, everything worked well with him, between each other, as well as their relationship with their environment, the world in which God had placed them. But you know that everything in the Bible kind of turns south. In Genesis chapter 3, things go sideways as conflict is introduced through sin and Satan. And there you have this moment where Adam and Eve uh, take a bite of the forbidden fruit and they sin against God and disrupt everything. And immediately after that, God then describes to them what life is going to be like now in a fallen world. And largely that life in a fallen world will now be characterized by conflict. There will now be conflict between them and their creator. Their hearts will now be hostile towards God. And that hostility takes a myriad of forms in our lives uh, today, from indifference to apathy to various responses to the creator who loves us. But God says this is how things are going to be now. You, there's going to be hostility between us. But then he also says uh, there will also be hostility between, uh, between you. Uh, that now people won't get along, that our relationships with each other are going to be characterized by uh, some are going to want to dominate others, others are going to want to manipulate others. Domination and manipulation are now going to comprise the conflict that is marking human relationships. But then he goes one step further and he says, not only will there be conflict between you and God and between you and each other, there will be conflict between you and creation, that your environment isn't going to be very hospitable to you. So he tells Adam, now when you till the garden to Produce, to get the earth to produce food for you, it's going to be hard. Weeds are going to grow in gardens, and you're going to have to labor hard to get the earth to produce its fruit to yield food for you. So conflict is going to comprise life in a fallen world. But one of the most beautiful dynamics of the gospel, and that comes screaming clearly through the scriptures, is that in that same chapter where God is describing those things to Adam and Eve, he also promises that things will not always be that way. He promises that one day there will come an ultimate peacemaker, one who's going to set everything right between God and his people, between his people and each other, as well as uh, creating a new heavens and a new earth or a new environment for human beings to indwell and to inhabit in a harmonious kind of way. And so the rest of the Bible is really just one long story anticipating this ultimate peacemaker who would come and set things right. So the prophets in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, would describe this one who is to come, this ultimate peacemaker. In chapter 9 verse 6, in that passage you read a moment ago, where we are told that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of 
peace. This is the one the world was longing for. And we know that this one was born of a virgin named Mary in a little place called Bethlehem. And he lived a life of utter obedience, walking in harmony with his father, only to have his life wind up at the cross. And there he would die on the cross for our sins. But we know that when Jesus died on the cross, he did not stay dead. He rose from the grave. And when he stepped out of the tomb, he was giving everybody a glimpse of what life is going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth, saying there's coming a new world where people will be given glorified bodies and they will be put into a world where everything will exist in harmony. There will be no sin or sickness or suffering. Things are going to be made right. Peace is going to come through this one named Jesus. So Paul's actually reflecting on that when he gets into Ephesians chapter 2 and he talks about the effects of this peace that Jesus would bring and and how it shows up in our lives and how it shows up in the world today. In Ephesians chapter 2, again in that passage you read a moment ago, where we are told, for he, referring to Jesus, for Jesus is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That is the hostility that existed between us and God. Jesus has done away with it. And he goes further to say not only did he deal deal with that, he tore down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between two persons to bring in different people to form a one body or one community in the world. And he would go on to say, by abolishing the law of the commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new person in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile both to God in one body, here's how, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, he did so to kill hostility, to kill hostility between us and our creator, to kill hostility between us and each other, and ultimately to kill hostility as it relates to us and our environment. And so you and I, as we live our lives in Christ now, uh, we live in light of this reality. We live in the fa- light of the fact that we have harmony with God. We live in light of the fact that it is possible to have harmony with each other. And we live in light of the fact that there's coming a new heavens and a new earth where we will inhabit a new world and harmonio- harmony will reign. And so we look forward to that day. But you know as well as I do that we're not there yet. You know as well as I do that we're still moving towards the return of the Savior who will set everything right. And until that day comes, conflict, unfortunately, will continue to raise its ugly head in our lives. It will continue to threaten the joy that you and I are to find in Jesus. And so Paul brings up this idea of conflict in Philippians chapter 4. As we sit in the crosshairs of this text are two types of conflict that he wants to bring out uh, to address so that we learn how to kind of apply the cross to, to apply the gospel to in our lives right now. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, this is kind of the idea. Two types of conflict, and they'll surface as we read. Beginning in verse 2, Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, meaning these two ladies were not getting along, and he was wanting them to agree in the Lord, to restore their relationship. Verse 3, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Then he goes on, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So here Paul is dealing with two types of conflict that we want to identify today and we want to recognize that these two types of conflicts can appear in our lives and they can appear in our church so that we know when they do arise, we know how to approach them through the cross that has killed all hostility. The first type of conflict that you see in verses 2 and 3 might be referred to as interpersonal conflict. That is conflict that occurs between two disciples, two people in the church. The second type of conflict, verses 4 through 9, it's not, not so much interpersonal or between two people as much as it is interpersonal. That is a conflict that can surface within our own hearts, within our own souls, within our own psyches and emotions under this word called anxiety. But let's first look at the, the interpersonal conflict. Now, Paul identifies these two ladies who aren't getting along, and they're influential leaders in the life of the church. They're people who labored side by side with him in the gospel. These are followers of Jesus. They are Christians, but yet they are in conflict. Now, it should not surprise us when conflict arises between two disciples. I don't know if that knocks you off balance as you think about who a Christian is supposed to be and what a church is supposed to be like, but I assure you, conflict happens in the church. And when it does, we shouldn't be surprised by it. Recognize that we are all works in progress and we are all growing in our faith. And as we do so, there are going to be times when we won't get along. There are going to be times where we do not agree. There are going to be times when conflict arises. But you and I, when that does happen, although we don't want to be surprised by it. We want to recognize how serious conflict can be to the health of our church. And so Paul says these two leaders in the church, these two ladies are not getting along and and he goes after it, seeking their harmony, seeking their uh, the, the restoration of their relationship because he knows that Jesus takes our unity very, very seriously. Jesus is concerned about our relationships with each other. He's concerned about peace being embodied and expressed between us. This is why in John chapter 17, just before he goes to the cross, he takes the time to pray for our unity. He says, he prays to the Father saying, Father, I want my guys, I want my disciples, I want my people to be one just as you and me, Father, are one. So he prays for our unity. That's how seriously Jesus takes it. But not only does he pray for it, earlier in John chapter 13, he actually attaches our effectiveness in ministry to our unity. He's saying a church will thrive in their influence when they are living in harmony with each other. This is John 13, 35, when Jesus says, The world will know that you are my disciples and how you love one another. As the world looks in and they see you guys getting along, they see you guys living in peace and harmony, loving and serving one another, deferring to each other. When they see that, it shows them something, an alternative way of life than what they're used to in the world that is. You see, unity isn't um, that common in our culture or in our world. Everyone is, seems to have a tribe. Everyone seems to have a culture. Everyone seems to have a subculture. But Jesus is saying, look, when you step into me, when you step into my people, understand that all those things that may divide you out there, all of those borders, all of those boundaries, they are erased in here. When you step into Christ, you now have unity in the midst of your diversity. You now have relationship with people that you might not have any relationship with outside of Christ. People that you might not naturally gravitate towards or get along with because they disagree. you disagree with them politically. You disagree with them on a number of things. But when you step into Christ, all of a sudden you share the one thing in the universe in common that ultimately matters. 
And Jesus is saying, this is what I want you to focus on. I want you to agree in the Lord. I want you to remember that you are in Christ. And despite your differences, despite your disagreements, this is what you have to focus on. And if you lose focus on that reality, then Jesus, then Paul is suggesting and implying in this text that it needs to be dealt with because you're, you're missing out on the main thing that you're supposed to be all about. You're losing focus. Focus off of Jesus, you're losing focus off of your mission. So he prays or he implores the church to come together and to work and to strive towards conflict resolution, so to speak. Now, when you look at this passage, I don't know the nature of the conflict. I don't know exactly what these two ladies weren't getting along. I have a couple of guesses as to what it's not. I don't think these ladies are disagreeing over doctrine. I don't think it's a doctrinal disagreement where one is saying Jesus is Lord and one is saying, well, Jesus is cool, and, but he's just kind of a teacher. I don't think it's a doctrinal disagreement. And the reason for that is because we have the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, Paul is addressing a doctrinal dispute in the life of the church. And when he writes that letter, he doesn't write that letter and saying, okay, I want you guys to come to some type of middle ground, compromise on whatever areas of, about Jesus that you can compromise on so that you can have unity. That's not what he says. Essentially, what he says in Galatians is that if you're going to divide over anything, you, you, you should divide over doctrine. If you're willing to part ways from another person who's saying one thing about Jesus that isn't true, then that's a legitimate ground for division. That's a legitimate ground for there to be separation. You don't sacrifice doctrine for the sake of preserving unity. But then at the same time, you, don't, you look at this story, I don't think it's a doctrinal dispute because he's saying, I want you guys to come back and agree in the Lord. I don't think the issue is a matter of immorality. I don't think there's a blatant sin that these ladies are involved in that Jesus is or that Paul is writing to say, okay, we need to work through this or compromise your holiness for the sake of unity. That's not what's going down either. And the reason why I think that is because we have the book of 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's an issue where there are some people in the church that have some very twisted sexual relationships. And Paul is saying, look, this isn't right. You need to repent and come back to a better understanding of what personal holiness is and, and this type of ethic. And so he says, look, don't. Don't, and he actually even says, and if, if they're unwilling to repent and to change in that way, then they need to go somewhere else. They don't need to be a part of the community anymore. It's not because he didn't love them. It's because he knew, he knows that uh, you don't compromise holiness for the sake of preserving unity. And so here in this moment where you have this conflict between two leaders in the church, I don't think the conflict is doctrine. I don't think the conflict is over some area of immorality. What I think is happening is the type of conflict that is present often in the life of the church. It's the type of conflict that's kind of like a rock in the shoe. It's just real small and subtle, but it can grow up and annoy you over time. The more that rock stays in your shoe, the more you kind of walk and step on that. It just kind of nags at things and you can't really walk very well. I think it's the type of conflict where a person's preferences may have been elevated to the point of principle. And so they have a hard time getting, a, getting along with people who have different preferences about things that aren't ultimately uh, gospel. And so they're not agreeing, perhaps. I think it's the type of conflict that arises when we uh, elevate our traditions and we put them on the same plane as our doctrines. Now, we're not a very old church. We're a young church, but a history is being written. And by God's grace, we're never going to get to the point where we say, okay, we've always done it this way, therefore it should always be done that way. Uh, we're not going to elevate tradition to the point of doctrine so that we start disagreeing over those types of things and division is created and we start focusing on what we shouldn't focus on to begin with. But maybe that's the type of thing that was going on in Philippians. They're elevating their traditions to the point of doctrines. Or maybe, maybe they've, the difference between personal opinion and fact or truth, have kind of the distinction between those two, that, that line has been erased, and they can't really tell the difference between opinion and fact. 
We should be able to disagree or we should be able to agree to disagree over matters of opinion. And we should be able to navigate our relationships in ways that maintain harmony, even if we have other things or we have different views that are related to opinions or preferences or even traditions. But I suspect there's even one other issue that, that's happening in this situation that I want to name for us today because I, I definitely want to guard against this as a pastor of this church. And I think maybe, given some of the language that Paul uses in this passage and some of the language he uses elsewhere in the Philippians, that maybe their disagreement, their division, their conflict is, is happening because these two ladies have become more concerned about their positions in the church than they are with their position in Christ. Maybe they're too infatuated with what roles they can have in the life of the church. Maybe they're too infatuated over the level of influence that they can have in competition with each other. And so as a result of them being more concerned with their positions in the church than they are with their position in Christ, division has arose, a conflict has broken out. And so what does Paul say? He says, look, I want, you, I want these ladies to agree in the Lord. I want them to come back to their position in Christ because this is where value is found. This is where identity is formed. Our value and our identity is not formed by the roles that we have in a church. It's not formed by a position we may occupy in a church or in the body. No, our, values and our, our value and identity is tied to the fact that we're in Christ. And so Paul's saying, look, you guys need to bring, come back to this dynamic. But he knows that moving in that direction can be difficult. So what does he do? Well, he calls for the church to operate as a type of, as, as a peacemaking community. It's very interesting that he doesn't say, okay, this conflict is between these two ladies. Let them work it out. He says, no, I'm going to call them by name in this letter. Uh, and chances are when they received the letter of Philippians, they opened it up on the Lord's Day on a, on a Sunday, and they actually read this letter out loud in public. Can you imagine being the two ladies sitting in the congregation, and they hear their names being called? And he's saying, look, these ladies aren't getting along. We need to work together to help them find peace, to help them find harmony once again. He's saying, look, your, your, your interpersonal conflicts within the body over these types of things, they, they're not private concerns. They, they concern the welfare and the health of the body. And there is grace available in the body to help us solve our differences and to help us solve our conflicts. So you don't get in a fight and then take it out in the back alley by yourself. No, you get in a fight and you stay with us. And you, help us and you let us help you navigate the areas of conflict, navigate the areas of disagreement. This is essentially what Paul is calling for in verse 3, where he's telling the whole church uh, to come alongside and to help these ladies get along. Now, if it comes to this idea of peacemaking and helping reconcile conflict in the body, there's a couple things we can glean from this text by way of application that I would like for us to keep in mind as we try to serve one another in these ways, one of which is that the idea of peacemaking, of mediating a conflict in the life of the church, it requires you and I to refuse to take sides on any matter or on any issue. One of the most remarkable things about verse 2 is the symmetry. He says, I entreat Yodia, and he says, I entreat Syntyche. He's not taking sides. He doesn't implore one while not imploring or entreating the other. No, he talks about both women with the same words in the same language. It's remarkable symmetry. It's balance. It's Paul modeling to the church. Look, in when matters of interpersonal conflict, if you're going to mediate, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you've got to refuse to take sides. You've got to stay in the middle. You've got to live and love and serve in that moment like Jesus, meaning you've got to stand on Jesus' terms and not take sides, even if one of those persons in the conflict is a friend of yours. 
Even if one of those persons in the conflict is the leader in the church that you look to most. He's saying even then, if you're going to mediate, you need to step out from behind them and step between them and occupy an objective uh, position, if at all possible. So he says, I want you to... I want you to refuse to take sides, but then he goes, uh, another thing we want to keep in mind is that we need, if we're, going to, if we're going to do that, if we're going to operate as peacemakers in that front, then we need to refuse to draw conclusions until we hear both sides. Not only do we step in the middle and maintain objectivity, we've got to be good listeners. If we're going to help our brothers and sisters navigate conflict, we have to listen to both sides before we draw any conclusions. I learned this the hard way in parenting. I don't, I don't hear both sides in parenting very well. In fact, I'm more prone to listen to the kid who comes to me first. And I'm more prone to listen to the kid who talks to me the loudest or the fastest. That tends to be who I side, I side with. But that's not good parenting. That's not good mediation. That's not good peacemaking. No, peacemaking says not only am I going to stand in the middle and refuse to take sides in any conflict on matters of opinion or preference or positions in the church, I'm going to step in the middle, but I'm also going to listen to both sides so that I can get a good read on the situation. And then I'm going to prayerfully discern how can I bring the gospel to bear on this situation for the sake of harmony between these two, these two individuals. So you have these, this dynamic coming out in this passage, refusing to take sides, refusing to draw conclusions until you hear both sides. But then by way of application, let me ask you a few questions as it relates to this, because I doubt Yodia and Syntyche realized that they were threats to unity in the life of the church. I mean, they were leaders. They strove side by side with the Apostle Paul in advancing the gospel, but now they're causing problems. But I wonder if they ever thought that they would ever be there. And so let me ask you, do you ever see yourself as a threat to the unity of the church? Do you ever see yourself as a threat to the unity of the church? If you don't, you should. I should see myself as a threat to the unity of the church. We are all susceptible to causing division, to causing problems interpersonally in the life of the body. And so we want to humbly recognize that possibility and humbly uh, be aware so we're on guard against causing division or stepping into unnecessary conflict in the life of the church. And then secondly, if you ever find yourself in an interpersonal conflict, will you ask for help? Are you humble enough to ask for help when you're not getting along with another person in the church? Will you cry out to the church and say, hey, will somebody help me? Because this relationship is rocky. It's tumultuous. We need assistance. We need grace. We need mediation. We need a peacemaker to step in between. Will you ask? There's a reason why Paul is writing this letter. Understand that the reason he's writing this letter to begin with is most likely because he's heard about this division. He's heard about the threat of division in the church at Philippi. He's learned about these two ladies and their disagreement. Somebody's asked him for help. So he's writing this letter to bring healing, to bring grace into the situation. And so if you and I are going to apply this text, we're going to think about interpersonal conflicts, and we need to be the types of people who can ask for help when we need it because we're struggling in our relationships with other people in the church. Or you might go one step further. What if you're struggling in your marriage? Are you humble enough to ask for help? Are you humble enough to ask for mediation? Are you humble enough to ask for peacemaking? Look, it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help. It's a sign of wisdom. We all need help. And God has given us a whole body to help us out, given us a whole body where grace can come to us and be for us. So we will see asking for help as wisdom, not, not weakness. But then third, the third question I would ask you to consider is, are you prepared to give help if you're asked? Are you developing as a peacemaker? Are you thinking about peacemaking in your discipleship? 
Are you thinking about what it means to refuse to take sides if you're ever asked to mediate? Are you thinking about how you, can how you should refuse to draw conclusions until you hear both sides? Are you cultivating your, your perseverance in listening to every side of a particular problem or of a particular situation? Are you developing as a peacemaker? Are you meditating on Philippians chapter 2, the attitude of Christ and what it means to consider other people more significant than yourself? What does it mean to, to check your rights for the sake of redemption? And, and what does it mean to serve another person, to be other oriented as needed to bring about peace to a situation. So are you prepared to give, give help if asked? And then I want to encourage you just as a pastor of this church that one of the things I want to encourage us to do uh, time and time and time again and really never get tired of doing is I want you guys to learn how to have awkward conversations. I want to learn how to have awkward conversations. I want us to press into those moments. Let's learn to ask questions. Let, let's, let's, Embrace the squirmy nature of conflict resolution and when you have to identify a problem and then address it. Let's press into awkward conversations because when we do so together as a family, loving one another well, realizing that our names are written in the book of life and there's security there, there's value there, we can step into any conversation without sweating it. Nothing's going to happen in that conversation that's going to cause your name to be erased from that book. That's the beauty of being in Christ, is that once your name goes down, your name's down. Indelible ink. It's not coming off. And so Paul reminds the church, look, when you press into this interpersonal conflict to restore harmony, remember that your names are in the book of life, that you are a member of the family of God. You're there. You're secure. You're stable. And because of that, you can talk about anything. You can address any problem. So it's good news that Paul is laying out in verses 2 through 3. So you have interpersonal conflict there, but then you get into verses 4 through 9, and Paul kind of turns a corner, and he shifts gears. He's not so much focused on interpersonal conflict. He's, he's focusing on what's called an interpersonal conflict, this issue of anxiety, a struggle that I know is all too familiar to the hearts of disciples in this room. It is a struggle all too familiar with people in this city. It is a struggle all too familiar with people throughout this country. You see, this idea of anxiety is the most common ailment in our culture. In 2016, it was the number two diagnosed disorder um, right behind depression. It was general anxiety disorder was number two diagnosed condition in the American culture. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and I can't explore all the reasons as to why that is. But I did find one particular article and book very helpful written by a woman named Ruth Whitman. Ruth Whitman wrote a book called America the Anxious. But before it became a book, it was an article. And she came over from Britain to analyze the American culture because she knows that we're a culture that's committed to what's called the American dream, that the pursuit of happiness is what everybody is going after. So it struck her as odd that in this culture where we're relatively free to pursue happiness, that we're also the most anxious culture in the world. And so she came over to observe and to analyze and to study, and she put her findings into a book. But this is some of her observations that I want to share with you. She says, referring to the pursuit of happiness and the uh, American dream, she says, this obsessive, driven, relentless pursuit is a characteristically American struggle, the exhausting daily application of the Declaration of Independence. But at the same time, it is creating a nation of nervous wrecks. Despite being the richest nation on earth, the United States is, by a wide margin, also the most anxious with nearly a third of Americans likely to suffer from an anxiety problem in their lifetime. America's precocious levels of anxiety are not just happening in spite of the great national happiness rat race, 
but also perhaps because of it. She goes on to say the American approach to happiness can spur a debilitating anxiety. The initial sense of promise and hope is seductive, but it soon gives way to a nagging, slow burn feeling of inadequacy. And she talks about how anxiety comes out of the questions that we end up asking in our pursuit of happiness. We ask ourselves, am I happy? Or are we happy enough? We ask ourselves, are we as happy as everyone else around us or as happy as everyone else seems to be? And then we get into that really anxiety-inducing question, well, could I be doing more to make myself happy? In this pursuit of happiness, I seem to be failing this pursuit and not doing a good job. What do I need to do different? Why am I struggling? And in asking that question, we begin to grow more and more and more anxious. We live in an anxious society. But what's interesting to me about the relevancy of the scriptures is that Philippi also was an anxious society. There's a reason why Paul is addressing anxiety in this letter. And he's having to tell them, look, do not be anxious about anything, but by everything, come to your God in prayer. And he's addressing this inner conflict of anxiety in this letter. So there's got to be some grace for us in this text. Now, I know talking about anxiety is a difficult thing because so, there's so much thought out there about anxiety, what it is, how to treat it, how we should go forward, uh, what treatments are best. There's all types of things out there dealing with this issue of anxiety. And because of that, it makes it somewhat challenging to talk about and to teach about in this setting. But let me, let me begin by assuring you what anxiety, or well, one, let me just say that there is a positive form of anxiety. I do not think every form of anxiety that may show up in our lives is entirely negative. I believe in some instances, anxiety can work kind of like an alarm clock, where it kind of goes off in our soul, it goes off in our heart, it, it kind of causes our heartbeat to race for a reason, and we need to act on it. As we're remembering, oh, we have a responsibility we need to execute. I forgot to pick up my daughter from school. I need to get there, right? There's anxiety that comes when you realize that you have a responsibility that you haven't done or there's something at work that you need to take care of. There's some good anxiety that can be an alarm to your soul to wake you up and motivate you to action. So some forms of anxiety can be good. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2.20 where he refers to Timothy's anxiety. And he talks about it in a positive kind of way, saying Timothy is anxious about the church. He's concerned about Philippi's welfare. He loves the people there. He wants to serve the people there. He wants to see them grow. And as a result, there's some anxiety swelling up within him because he knows there's some conflicts that need to be dealt with. So there is a, form, there is a positive form of anxiety that we don't want to just dismiss altogether. The problem is, or on the flip side of that, the negative aspect of anxiety that I think Paul is addressing here is when that alarm clock that sounds in your soul, it never goes off. You know, the positive type of anxiety, when that alarm goes off, you act on it, and you find peace again. You act on it and you, you're able to come back too. But the negative aspect of anxiety that Paul's saying, do not be anxious about everything in this kind of way, is when that alarm, that alarm clock goes off and it keeps ringing. It's ringing everywhere you go. It's, re it's ringing in every conversation you have. It's ringing every time you step into a social environment or do something. You, you're not at peace. You're, you're nervous. You're anxious. And that's the type of anxiety that I think Paul is addressing here. And that's the type of anxiety that... Jesus, I believe, died to heal in our lives. I think that because this word anxiety, it comes, it's a powerful image sitting behind the word anxious. That word anxious comes from a term that has this image of being stretched and pulled into a bunch of different directions. 
And it's this image of anxiety just kind of stretching the soul and pulling us in so many different directions that we become spiritually thin. We become spiritually anemic. We become spiritually translucent. There's not much substance to us because we're so anxious and we're so fretful that we're being pulled and stretched and, and we become very, very thin in our spirituality. And Paul's saying, this is not to be true of you. This is the type of thing that needs to be dealt with in light of the gospel because God wants so much more for us than to live a life resigned to that type of anxiety. But then there's another image that comes out of this word, and it's actually the English word worry. Our English term for worry comes from a German word meaning to strangle. And the image there is that anxiety, this type of anxiety strangles the soul. It chokes life out of us. But then there's another image that comes in through the the book of Proverbs. It says anxiety of this sort weighs us down. It is a weight that we can't carry. We ask ourselves, am I happy in this culture and what am I not doing to make myself happy? And we start asking that question and the weight just gets heavier and heavier and heavier and we can't seem to move and to operate in a healthy, life-enhanced kind of way. So one way you might define this type of anxiety is this type of anxiety that stretches the soul, that chokes the soul, that weighs down our lives. It occurs when you and I start fixating on the worst possible outcomes of future possibilities. We fixate, we become enamored with the worst possible outcomes of future possibilities. We live our lives in the hypothetical, but the hypothetical is always scary. And when we fixate on that, this type of anxiety surfaces, and it is a very unhealthy way to live. It's not the way of life that Jesus would have us subscribe to and resign ourselves to. And so... I know that we live in a culture where there's a lot of ways to deal with this type of anxiety. Everybody has their technique. Everybody has their medication. Everybody has their procedure. You can, get, you can bring some healing in your life if you just apply this technique or apply that technique or whatever the case may be. And, and I know some of these techniques are helpful, so don't hear me say that, that if you're on taking medication for your anxiety that you need to stop immediately. I don't think that's true. I think some medication can be appropriate. I think our culture goes overboard with it sometimes, but there's some that can be helpful. I think breathing techniques are helpful. I think classical music to calm you down is helpful. I think those techniques are good, but what you and I got to realize is that those techniques are a lot like taking putty and covering the cracks of a wall. We're just covering it up. We're not dealing with the structure of the wall. We're not dealing with the problem. But God wants so much more for us than to live our lives just applying silly putty to all of our anxiety, to apply silly putty to all of our issues and struggles emotionally and psychologically. He wants to recalibrate and to restructure our hearts. He wants to give us a new heart. and He wants to live in light of this new reality. I think this is what Paul is getting after when he gives us a lot, of, a lot of grace in this text on how to respond when we become anxious and how to respond to this inner conflict. Now, Before we identify kind of what some of these things are that he tells us to do, let me encourage you, if you are struggling with anxiety tonight, I don't want you to be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of your anxiety. Anxiety is so common among us. Anxiety is such a common struggle of the fallen human condition. You should never be ashamed of it. But at the same time, if you are a follower of Christ, don't accept it as your new normal. Don't accept it as the new definition of your life and that your narrative will always unfold in an anxious kind of way. So we want to be a church where people can be honest about their anxiety. You don't have to be ashamed of it. But we also want to be a church of disciples who aren't accepting it as the defining characteristic of their lives. We want to press into the grace available in this story. And it starts there. 
Now, a couple of resources I would call out to you before we dive into some of these reasons, one of which uh, Courtney San Miguel is one of our, she's a resident biblical counselor in our community, and her services are available to anyone who is struggling in this kind of way. If you would like counseling on this issue, again, don't be ashamed of it, but don't accept it either. Press into help, and Courtney San Miguel and her biblical counseling ministry, Water's Edge, is available to us, and she's running in our church. Many of you know her, and she's ready to uh, help in any way that she, any way that she can. And so you can utilize your Connect card, and if you would like to connect with her, just utilize that Connect card, throw it in the box in the back, and we'll follow up with you, help you get connected with her on that front. So again, don't be ashamed of it, but don't accept it either. Because these things that I'm about to tell you, they're going to they're, they're require a lot of work to flesh out. They're going to require a lot of work by grace, through faith, to apply. The first one is this, verse 4. If we're going to kind of respond and deal with this inner conflict, we need to anchor our joy in Jesus and not in our circumstances. We've got to learn to anchor our joy in Jesus and not in our circumstances. This is verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says it twice for emphasis. Does Paul really mean to rejoice in the Lord always? I think he does. That's why he says it twice. He's saying anchor your joy in Jesus, not in your circumstances. What he's getting after here is that he knows that our peace is often unsettled by misplaced praise. When we place our joy in circumstances rather than Christ, we are placing our joy in things that will inevitably change. Our circumstances are not eternally good. Our circumstances will get hard. They will get challenging. That job promotion that excited you one day could just as easily be taken away the next. That relationship that you're excited about one moment can prove hard in the very next moment. So we don't put our joy in our circumstances because circumstances are not eternally good. Jesus is. So what you and I learn to do is we learn to place and to anchor our joy in Jesus, not in those things that are changing constantly around us. I saw a picture of this by a guy named Stan Knapper who lost his son, his teenage son, in a car wreck. And when myself and my dad showed up at his house to counsel him and to be with him through his grief, we walked up to the porch and the door was closed. We knocked. Nobody answered. We kind of pushed our way in. And when we entered the room, we heard piano playing. And we knew he was a classical pianist. And he had a piano in the back of his house. We kind of followed the music all the way to the back. And we turned the corner. We found Stan sitting at his piano and with tears coming down his face, crying out, God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. God is still sovereign. And in the very next breath, God is still good. God is still good. God is still good. He was rejoicing in the Lord always. Don't think that anchoring your joy in Jesus, not your circumstances, mean that you paste a plastic smile on your face. To rejoice in the Lord always means you grieve with God. It means you weep with Jesus. It means you press into your relationship with Christ when everything else around you may be changing or falling apart. This is what Paul is able to do in prison. Not sure if he's going to be set free or if he's going to be put to death, but he's rejoicing in the Lord. His anchored his joy in Jesus, not in those things that can always change, in those things that, that can always be taken away from him. Secondly, not only do we want to anchor our joy in Jesus, not in our circumstances, we want to talk to Jesus when our anxieties arise. We want to, in other words, we want to pray when we feel anxious. This is precisely where he goes in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's saying, I want you to pray, and I want you to know who it is you're praying to. Peter would say something very similar in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, you are to cast all of your anxieties upon God because he cares for you. So when you're feeling anxious, how do we respond? Well, we talk to Jesus. We pray about how we're feeling. We don't let anxiety convince us that God is not listening or that he's not paying attention or that he doesn't care. No, we pay attention to what the scriptures say. 
And we cast our anxieties upon him, believing that he cares for us. And when we do that, when we pray, when we kind of transfer our anxious thoughts and we place them upon the, the broad shoulders of Jesus, we can then replace those thoughts with better thoughts, which we'll get after in a moment. But what we tend to do when we're feeling anxious and we start praying is we kind of we act like a bowler. If you've ever gone bowling, you know that bowlers, uh, when they release the ball and it goes down the lane towards the pin, there's really no control over the ball at that point. Once they cast that ball down the lane, that ball's going to the pins, and it's going to hit wherever it hits. It's going to land wherever it lands. But bowlers don't believe that. That's why when they release the ball, they start twisting their bodies. They start contorting. They start blowing the ball and trying to move the ball with, their, with the force or whatever the case may be, and they can't do it. Well, oftentimes, when we cast our anxieties upon the Lord, when we pray in response to our anxiety, we We don't trust God in the midst of the prayer. We want to keep a tether there and try to manipulate an outcome or to try to work a situation to a certain goal, thinking that, well, if God would answer like this, then I will be all right. But what you and I got to understand is that when we pray in response to anxiety, we're praying the way Jesus tells us to do in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. In other words, press into God in prayer. If something, if it's not really doing it for you when you first start, keep praying. How long do you pray? It's been said, well, pray until it helps, right? Pray until your heart comes around the reality of the God who you're talking to. And this is who your God is. He would go on to say, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to thing, give good things to those who ask him? In other words, when you pray, recognize that you're praying to a heavenly Father who loves you. You're praying to a heavenly Father who cares about you. So you keep pressing in and you trust God with the outcomes of your prayer. You trust God with the outcome of your wrestle and your struggle in those moments. But understand that this God that you're praying to is a father, not a grandfather. Grandfathers know one answer to their kids' requests, yes. And it's always instant and immediate. It's always yes right now. Whatever you want, you got it. God is a father, not a grandfather. And his responses to our prayers may not always be yes, but they will always be best. That's what we're trusting when we come to him in this way. That's what we're doing when we're praying in response to our anxieties. But then not only do we want to talk to Jesus when that happens, we want to learn to live according to our theology. We want to learn to live according to our theology. Look at verse 5. Paul says, remember that the Lord is near. Remember that God is close. Remember that God is with you. And then he goes on to point out that God is a God of peace. Remember who your God is. And so if you're restless, if you're anxious, if you're fretting, if you're being stretched thin, understand that that's not what God desires for you. So you come to him and you live according to your theology. You believe that he's with you. You believe that he loves you. You believe that he has peace for you. And so you press in until you get it. You don't stop asking. You don't stop seeking. You don't stop knocking. You live according to your theology. This is what we do as disciples of Jesus. This is what A.W. Tozer would say in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the single most important thing about you. That gives shape to everything you view in life is what comes into our minds when we think about God. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you think of him as a heavenly father who loves you like crazy? Do you think of him as a God of peace? Do you think of him as a God who's close? 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the single most important thing about us. So we want to live according to our theology. And if we're unsure, well, then we want to fill our minds with the scriptures so that we have a good understanding of who God is, a reliable portrait of the God that we're talking to. Which brings me to the next dynamic. Not only do we want to talk to Jesus and live according to our theology, we want to learn to meditate on all the evidences of God's grace and goodness in our lives. This is where Paul goes in verse 9. He then turns the corner. He says, now whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, I want you to think about these things. I want you to meditate upon them. So when you cast your anxious thoughts towards God, you replace those anxious thoughts with things that are true, with things that are good, with things that are excellent. You learn to meditate upon the evidences of God's grace in your life and towards you in Jesus. So we want to fill up our minds with good things. We want to meditate. We want to replace anxious thoughts that are usually tied to lies and hypotheticals. And we want to feast on true thoughts that are good and noble. We want to meditate on God's grace. It's amazing how when we think about God's grace, how that can kindle joy, how that can ignite happiness. I'm sure you've heard the song by, I think, how do you say it, Pharrell? Pharrell, yeah. The song Happy. You know, when that song came out, it just kind of swept the land. Everybody was singing that song, and you can't help but dance when you hear it. I was at weddings where brides and grooms were walking down the aisle in response to that song, just kind of dancing their way out. It's a, it's a great song. But what I love about that song and what struck me the first time I heard it was when I watched the movie Despicable Me 2. And if you're familiar with the movie, you know that that movie happens, or the song starts playing after this despicable guy receives love that he did not deserve or did not earn from a lady named Lucy. So Lucy would love this despicable guy despite himself. Give him a kiss and what happens? Well, he gets happy. The song starts playing and he's dancing and singing and moving around. Well, this is what grace does. When we meditate on the fact that every good gift we receive from God is a manifestation of his grace, is an expression of his goodness, it has a way of making us, making us happy. And that is true not only of your salvation, that is true of any good night's sleep you have. Every good thing you receive and experience in this life has been purchased for you through the cross of Christ. It's his grace towards you. And so when you think about that, when you realize that everything I have, I don't have because I deserve it. I have because God is gracious. That changes the infrastructure of our hearts. It makes us grace-saturated people who are responding more appropriately to what God is doing. And then lastly, what we want to do is sink into community. If you're feeling anxious and struggling with this inner conflict, we want to sink into the community that we are a part of. This is where Paul goes in verse 9. What you have learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things. I want you to do the things that you've done. I want you to, to think like I'm thinking. I want you to view God the way I'm viewing God. I want you to consider your circumstances uh, the way I'm considering them so that I'm able to rejoice in the Lord always. So he's saying sink into the community. Pay attention to the examples around you. Imitate those who, whose lives have the peace that you love for the lives of people who seem to be in a healthier position than you well you want to look to them and learn from them and press into relationship with them and and see how their their grace in their lives can kind of rub off and spill over into your life but to do this again you have to get to a point where you're not ashamed of your anxiety you're sinking into community you're not going to be ashamed of your struggles you're going to talk about it you're going to walk in the light you're going to let people help you that's how you sink into community a few years back, I was playing flag football out on a field that had just turned into a big mud pit after a thunderstorm. And right before we went home, everybody was kind of fleeing the field because the rain was coming down and the lightning was flashing. It was pretty crazy. And people running in to take refuge in cars and shelters and all these things. And 
A guy looked at me and he challenged me. He said, Andrew, before we leave, we're going to go slide one more time. I said, okay, I can do that. I play college baseball. I know how to slide, right? That's what I do. And so he says, all right, let's go for it. And he said, one, two, three, go. I took off. He stayed behind. I was like, well, what's going on here? And so I take off and I'm getting ready to slide. And I have in my mind that I'm going to go head first into this mud pit and just kind of slide as far as I can. And but once I started to slide, I kind of had a brain fart, and I forgot what I was trying to do. And rather than going head first, I decided to go feet first. And when I did, I put my, uh, my ankles went in a direction they shouldn't have gone in, so my cleats got stuck in a rut. So they stuck in a rut. My body went one way, my ankles went the other, and there was this loud pop. And I fall face down in this mud pit in the middle of this storm, and I can't get myself up. I can't walk. I was just in pain. Not only did my ankle hurt, my ego hurt as well, because I should know how to slide. My teammates ran out to me, and they started comforting, trying to help me. And once they got to me, they said, Andrew, we've got to get you to the hospital. We've got to get you taken care of. What if I would have looked up at them in that moment and said, hey, guys, I appreciate the offer. But it seems to me that I'm the only one in this room, with a, or I'm the only one on this field with a bum ankle. All you guys have healthy ankles. You don't really know what I'm going through, so you can't really help me. What if, what if I kind of turned their help away because they couldn't understand what I was going through? Well, had I said that, they would have looked at me like I was ridiculous. They would have looked at me like they should have. And, and to be honest with you, if you're a person who's refusing help because you're under the naive assumption that people can understand what you're going through, you too need to be looked at in a ridiculous way. Let people help you. The reason why we have a body to press into, a community to sink into, is so that we can receive help and grace and assistance from people who may be healthier than us, people who may be more mature than us. So we want to sink into that community and accept the help that comes to us and not think, well, I'm the only one going through what I'm going through and nobody else can really help me. That's a lie. So we want to check that lie. If you're struggling, be honest about it and accept the help that is available to you in the body of Christ. So with that said, let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to kind of move on in, in our time together. But as I do, let me encourage you to think about, are, are you, is there any conflict in your life right now as it relates to another disciple, as it relates to another person uh, who's in this room or perhaps in this church? And would you consider how you might take steps towards reconciliation? To restoring harmony. If that means you need a mediator and a peacemaker, that you will then prayerfully seek one out and that you will be honest about the conflict so that people can come and help you and your uh, fellow follower of Christ out on that front. But then also, if you're in this space today and you're struggling with anxiety and you're being stretched and choked and weighed down, would you take some time to cast your anxieties upon the Lord who cares for you now? And then would you take the time to step into relationship with others, to share with them what you're going through so that they might help you and, and love you and serve you in whatever ways that they can. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to encourage you to take this time as we sing and partake the Lord's Supper to, to consider how the Lord might want you to respond with whatever conflict is happening around you or whatever conflict is happening within you. God, would you help us now with the Prince of Peace come? Would his presence be made manifest among us so that we might find healing and help in the midst of our conflicts, whether they be interpersonal or whether they be interpersonal? God, would you give us grace now all in Jesus' name? Amen.